Now, today we are going to jump back into our summer teaching. I started a series about three weeks ago, and so we won't have a traditional Father's Day sermon because of that. There's one last year. If you're interested in that, I encourage you to check it out. I don't want to lose the consistency of where we're going today. We started a series three weeks ago in Ephesians, and what we've been talking about is this idea of the armor of God. Standing firm is the title of this series. And the point of this series has been to give us a, a keen understanding about what it takes to stand in the ways of Jesus at times in our life that are often difficult, at times in our life where there might even be an adversarial posture to our faith. There's all kinds of things that can sort of trip us up and discourage us in this world. And one of the reasons we get this amazing teaching, all of these sort of instructive commands that Paul gives us, is so that we can be the type of people who, not perfectly, please don't hear me say that, there's no naivete in this teaching or the teachings that will follow, but so that we can, in a way that honors Jesus, consistently stand firm for him. Nobody gets through this life without failures, mistakes, error, and sin. But this teaching, especially the one we're going to talk about today and next week, really shows us that God never leaves us alone in our time with him on this earth, and he's always there for us. And so the armor, in a very serious way, signifies the ways that God seeks to be present in our lives. We'll get to that in detail here in a moment, but I want to open with a, a story. 2001, uh, if you're a history buff, you will know this. I am an absolute history buff, so I'm filled with all kinds of facts that are relevant in some case, cases and sometimes absolutely, I think they're relevant, but most of you do not when we talk in private. But this is a very serious uh, thing that happened. 2001, there was a world-renowned historian, Stephen Ambrose. This guy's name ringing a bell to any of you? Maybe a hand or so? Okay, so three of you know who this guy is, okay. Stephen Ambrose is probably, as far as the modern era goes, the greatest historian regarding military history, okay? And he wrote a book uh, entitled Band of Brothers, and it chronicled the true story of how the 101st Airborne Regiment in the U.S. Army uh, helped to win the incredible battle of World War II by fighting its way from Normandy to the heartland of Germany. While uh, army troops were invading the beaches, they were dropped behind enemy lines to essentially create a lot of ruckus as those forces moved inland. And this book uh, was so popular that it was later adapted into an immensely popular HBO miniseries called Band of Brothers, entitled from the same name of the book. And in one of the first episodes, there's a, a really important, a standout scene, and this is a historical depiction of this, so there's, there's not any fiction in what I'm sharing with you now. In one of the first episodes, there's a standout scene where a gentleman named Dick Winters, who was in charge of the 101st at that time in the field, He's been ordered by superiors to take down a large German artillery gun that is still firing on Allied soldiers as they are landing on the beaches on D-Day. This is a much larger force that they have to deal with, and against this much larger force in a well-established bunker-like fortification, tunnels and all kinds of uh, entrenched positions, this gentleman named Dick Winters takes 12 of his men and successfully destroys this enemy position. The depiction of this scene in both the book and even in the uh, miniseries, it was very gritty and it was fascinating watching what they did and the courage that it took to actually accomplish this. It might almost seem minimal, but it was significant at the moment. Their tactics from that day uh, are still to this day taught in the West Point Military Academy. They sort of textbook design the way that you take a facility like that. That was amazing in and of itself. But what I found most compelling about that scene is what happened just prior to the actual assault of that German gun battery. One of the most compelling scenes in the whole series because as these men were planning their attack, they were given this, this order. They had to sit down and then determine how to do it. It was very clear that everybody listening to what they were going to do knew they had a very serious and incredibly costly, life-threatening clearly, and significant job before them. It was a high-risk 
mission. But even with that in mind, what I thought was amazing was the sort of courage and the urgency in which they responded to that order because they knew the consequence of ignoring it was so substantial, so severe, that it could potentially be disastrous for the fledgling reality of invading the shores of Europe to turn back the tide at that, uh, that point of Nazi Germany. This is the first stage of the invasion, so this is a mission-critical job they have. And I share this with you this morning because there is a very similar sense of mission urgency that Paul is trying to get across to us as he tells us to put on the spiritual armor of God. In lots of places, Paul uses historical and especially military analogies because there is almost always a sense of urgency in these, in these realities. It wasn't something that could be sat on many, 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 many years ago. That order had to be responded to and accomplished. And sometimes I think we might lose. I'm not talking about pressure. Please hear me here. But sometimes I wonder if in modern Christianity we lose the, the urgency of what Paul is actually saying in teachings like this. It is why he uses this military metaphor to describe this aspect of the Christian faith. He's literally evoking the language similar to the story I just shared with you of a captain on the battlefield commanding his troops to put on their armor and prepare for a great charge on the field of life as we seek to enjoy and build the kingdom of God on earth. And so like a soldier in the field, for us, denying these commands, these orders, will likely lead to disastrous spiritual consequences. The idea behind this is that it's sort of silly, in Paul's day especially, for a troop to go into war without protection, without the armor. And the spiritual metaphor is significant here because the same idea is being communicated to us. We sort of automatically disadvantage ourselves if we try to bring about the things of God or rest in the things of God or live in ways that honor God if we do it in an unprotected manner without these armors that we're speaking about. Following these truths is necessary According to what Paul has already said, the, the, the premise of the two sermons we had prior to this, following it is necessary to win the war against the schemes of the enemy. And we've spoken about that at length over these past two weeks. The general scheme of the enemy is to distort truth, and to get us to believe lies. Lies like we're not valued on this earth. Lies like we have no worth on this earth. Whatever it is, the scheme of the enemy is almost always to, to distort a beautiful thing God has said about us so that we'll live in a lie discouraged. That is the thing, amongst other things, but that is the main thing we want to be able to protect ourselves from. We want to flourish on this earth. We want to be people who, who thrive because of the goodness of who God is in our lives. And so as we continue on in our summer series, I want to point out that each piece of armor that we are talking about, last week we talked about the belt of truth, each piece of armor that Paul tells us to put on really speaks to a significant area of our hearts. It speaks to who we are as people, how we function in this world, and what we actually need in life to, to flourish, to live in a way where we don't just get through 80 or 90 years on this earth. We actually we put a dent in this world in a serious way so that we know we have honored God with all that we are, brokenness and all. We have lived in a way that actually has pleased our Father in heaven. Goodness and grace, all of these things wrapped up into one thing called our lives. And what Paul tells us here is if we are faithful to put these truths on, to apply them to our heart, to live in them, to meditate on them, to persevere through them in the days when we're challenged in them, he promises us that they will help us to stand firm in the ways of Christ no matter what we face. Now, contrary to a common attitude, a modern one in Christianity, you cannot fully experience Jesus' grace, his power, his peace, his hope, his joy, all these wonderful promises he gives us, unless you desire to some degree, as imperfect as our desire may be, 
to love and follow him. The, the, the essence of what it means to love Jesus is to follow him. And so don't hear me setting some idealistic expectation here about our grandiose ideas and plans to follow Jesus. Some days following Christ can be very difficult. But all that I want to say here is that we want to be the type of people who have some desire, even if the desire is that we desire it. This is essential to what we're talking about today. These blessings, these promises God offers us, peace and stability in our hearts, emotional stability, these things do go hand in hand. If we want emotional stability in our lives, if we want relational stability in our lives, it does us well to actually rest in the arms of Jesus and learn from the way that he treated people and and cared for them. That's why I say these things go hand in hand. And that's what this passage is trying to show us. And I hope it will be very evident today and the week that follows as we begin to talk about the command to to put on this breastplate of God's righteousness. This week, that is what we're going to talk about. And it is specifically given to us so that we can stand firm against the problem of evil and the difficulties of sin. Now, I'm going to fully admit that there's a bit of a tension in what we're going to talk about today. Um, You know, I'm not a guy that beats on sin a lot, but that word is in the Bible. And when we come across truths that address it, I have a fidelity to God and you to actually address these things. And so today we're going to talk... Uh, in detail today and in next week about today's sin, next week righteousness, we're going to talk about what sin is in our lives, or at least in a general way. And I'm going to tell you why I think it's important that we look at this teaching in this way. I, I actually don't know that we can truly appreciate God's righteousness in our lives unless we actually understand why we need his righteousness in our lives. We're really big here on the whys of faith. Uh, I don't want to be the type of person who communicates to you or us to each other that simply says do something without actually engaging the human heart so we understand the whys of what we do things. The whys are really where the, the rubber meets the road when it comes to our faith. When our hearts have some type of an epiphany and we understand their need for these types of truths or we understand the reasons for why we're supposed to live in them and apply them, that's much different than me just cognitively explaining a definition of sin or righteousness. Here, specifically, we are told that we need the breastplate of righteousness because of the problem of sin. And so while this might be a sticky subject at times, I also want us to know that there's a great freedom in having a conversation like this because I hope we will see today and next week that God has given us everything we need to conquer this idea of sin, this pervasive attitude with Jesus' righteousness. It's essentially what he says to us is, there's a major enemy you have in life, and I'm going to put my sword in your hand to address it, to deal with it. And that is the beauty of a teaching like this, Paul's writings. This this leads me to the only truth I want to share with you this morning. We'll look at it in a couple of ways, but there's one main idea I want to share with you this morning. We cannot fully appreciate the breastplate of righteousness until we understand the problem of sin. The two feed each other. Now, in our culture, in general, and even in the church, past, present, and modern, the word sin is a word that has often carried with it great misunderstanding. And this is usually because the the case behind this is the way we communicate sin or the way we understand it has not been conveyed in a serious manner. There have been incomplete, partial, sometimes outright wrong definitions of it. Now, I want to address the elephant here. Maybe on the surface level, especially if you've come, uh, whether it's been in a church or in your workplace or outside of your workplace, in a family, the idea of judgment is not limited to just the the church. This is a people issue, and I say this all the time. If you think that uh, unhealthy judgment is just a Christian problem, open up Twitter today when you get out of this church and see what happens there, right? Judgment is a people problem, and so what I want to say here is, on the surface level, you might be saying, 
man, the, the issue I've had with talking about sin is the people I've dealt with have been really like arrogant and, and aggressive. The people who say that they affirm this, it's almost as if they take it too seriously. They beat me with a stick when they talk about it. If you've come from a background like that, no matter where it's from, I want you to know that that is, that is not right. That is incorrect in every way. Maybe you're saying that, uh, that I've talked to people like this and they tell me that sin is everywhere and the goal of following Jesus is simply to just avoid those behaviors, okay? Maybe you're saying the people I've met like that are abrasive and really mean and they have treated me like a person or maybe, you know, we have to be honest here, maybe at times we've been this to somebody. They act like they own a moral high ground in life and they just enjoy reminding me of the fact that I'm not on it with them. Maybe that's been your experience here. Now, we've talked about righteousness in this room before, and I want to share with you a story. It's a story I've shared with you several years ago, a story of something that happened to me very early on in my faith. And I share this with you not because I don't have another story to share, but this is the point in my life where this, a teaching like this actually made real sense to me. This was the moment in my life where God addressed me fully understanding my challenges in life, my problem of sin, and the way that Jesus actually addressed it. Years ago, okay, I mean, when I was in my, uh, my early 20s, I, had, I became a Christian at tw- just shy of 22. I was not really raised in a strong church background. I, we sort of had a, I don't know, we had a, a, an, a, an acquaintance with religion, but it was not anything that was really uh, practiced. I sort of believe that that was, you know, my grandmother and my mother at that point were very uh, sort of religious, and we sort of vicariously understood our faith through them. And so I never had any real ownership of any faith in my life until my 20s. And when I turned, or when I, when I came to Christ, uh, even to this day, I've, I've always had sort of a voracious appetite to know stuff and to learn stuff. I'm generally wired from the brain down. And so I had a lot of objections to faith and a lot of questions about faith. And when I became a Christian, uh, after wrestling with a lot of reasons for why I thought this was a good idea for my life, I really desired to know stuff and to grow in my faith. And so I was absorbing anything that came my way. I was reading books. I wound up moving to New Orleans to study theology at a seminary. I was just all about this. And one night with a group of seminary students, I was invited to attend a teaching at a church uh, on the other side of the city. It was a, it was a church that was giving a teaching on, on marriage and, and spouses. And I was single at the time, and I really wanted to be married. So I said, hey, this sounds like a good idea. We all gathered up together and drove out there to listen to the message. And so the main idea of the message, uh, at least at its outset, was warning us all, everybody in that group, they were warning us that allowing sin into any relationship we had, whether it be a romantic relationship or a relationship with friends, our children, whatever it is, however we have contact with people, the premise of the message was letting sin into that would eventually destroy it. And that fundamentally, I thought, was an accurate statement. And I was really interested in this subject. Then, and even now, the idea of sin has always been fascinating to me, meaning understanding it since it is such a problem and challenge in our lives. And because I wanted to be married, I was all ears here. Now, it began well, but at least in my opinion, it ended really well. Because unfortunately, that's the, that's the first, I would say, like proactive uh, teaching point we got that day. And then the rest of the sermon in its entirety was like a bullet point list of everything that we were not supposed to do so that we could have a, what seemed to be like a sinless relationship. And I have to admit, like halfway through that, um, my heart was just like fatigued. I'm sort of a very thick-skinned human, and it was sort of like, 
having the weight of this word sin draped over my shoulders. It was at the point where I was utterly discouraged and I thought like, at some point there's got to be something positive here. There's got to be some hope in this message, some form of encouragement. But it actually never came. And this is when it totally went south. At the end of the teaching, there was this sort of climactic uh, statement wrapped up in a little cliched nursery rhyme. And the speaker literally ended the message by saying this, quoting here. He said, when it comes to finding somebody who's godly or having a, a godly relationship, the guy said, listen, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't date any girls who do. And he said that like we were all supposed to be like, oh, man, like bullet point, life changed forever, right? Now, in case you're wondering, uh, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I actually didn't marry a woman who do, okay? <laughs> because that sermon moved me to the place that before I married my wife, Corinne, I told her to stop dipping. We had to clear that up, right? <laughs> She had a terrible habit with it. It was really bad. I'm just kidding. Maybe, maybe, right? So, now, let me, let me frame the problem here. This was a great example of, of the issue that day. Although all those habits can be dangerous and can lead to tons of health problems, there's no unhealthy bias in this room or for me, for, for people to do those things. That was the, the problem with this whole teaching. The point of all of this, the point of a statement like that and 600 other ones like that, is I remembered hearing that message and, and I really was wondering about it because to one degree I knew like, yeah, these, these things are true. Like, these are things we should be careful about. Like, not letting enter into a relationship. Like, verbally or, or physically abusing somebody or treating them poorly or having views on sex that are different than, than God's economy in the Scripture. These were not wrong statements. The problem was that we never actually got to the heart of how we could have any type of hope in our lives to overcome these challenges because the whole teaching was entirely based on you could have summarized it in one sentence. Clean up the outside of your life and everything will be okay. And it never addressed, to me, the gaping hole in this. It never addressed the real issue. What is it that drives unhealthy behaviors in our life? What are the root issues that cause us to function in these ways? For example, if you have a problem with stealing, what is it that drives the human heart to want to disadvantage somebody and take something from somebody that doesn't belong to them? We can apply this to any morality in the Bible. And while it's important to know what the end game is, I actually think it's more important to understand what drives us to behaviors like this. The message simply was, get moral and everything's going to work out because that's godliness. And this is a great example of what I'm talking about here. This is an understanding of sin that is common, it is shallow, and it is incomplete. And that is why I say we really need to be more serious about how we understand this word because we will never understand the beauty of Christ's righteousness applied in our lives until we understand what he has dealt with so that we can walk in freedom with him. In fact, if, if you believe that sin is just managing an external set of behaviors, there is a very likely, as high likelihood that it will destroy, it will erode your real relationship with Jesus. And I want to be super clear here before we move on. The scripture is explicit. There are behaviors, attitudes of the heart, and actions that God calls sin. And we've said countless times in this room, in our group life, in personal conversations, we affirm that these things are in the scripture. So what I want to say here is in no way am I trying to undermine that truth. However, we just make a real mistake when we only see sin as a deed and not a deep-seated condition of the heart that drives that action. If you understand sin this way, then the same principle apply when you understand, or how you understand God's righteousness in your life, which we will touch on today, but really expound upon next week. 
It's very easy to just think on the, on the, on the reverse that righteous actions are also just external things we do. In other words, because I don't steal, then I'm good to go. The challenge with these things is the validation of what we do. Our actions, our thoughts, everything we do, the validation of those things in God's eyes come when they are properly rooted in a Christ-centered heart attitude. This is how we have to understand any type of spirituality or morality in the Christian faith. Now, I'll share a verse with you that uh, I actually think is it's probably the most significant verse in the New Testament that shows you how significant this problem was in Jesus' day. Sin as behavior management. Such a problem in Jesus' day that he had to directly confront it. Matthew 23, 27. It'll be behind me. Jesus is speaking. Think about this. He is speaking to the religious elite, to the folks who went to school and were educated in the things of God and were supposed to be teaching and passing on the things of God. To them, he says this. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. And he directly calls them hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. That is arguably the most scathing comment the gentle Jesus leveled against another person or group of people on earth. And what's interesting is the severity of this comment is applied to the religious. It's applied to the people here that actually are taking the things of God and misrepresenting them in such a way that it is causing people to miss the very heart and the goodness and the grace of God. And in this verse, Jesus tells the Pharisees, who are an educated sort of pastoral class of people in the first century world, what he tells them, they're known for their piety. He says, it doesn't matter how polished and tidy the exterior of your life is. If the interior of your heart, the control center of your life right here, is still dominated by sin, he he equates this to being clean on the outside and having decaying dead bones on the inside. This, at least in my opinion, and I think this is a very good opinion, this is one of the most dangerous and deceptive places that anybody can be in life, especially in faith. Because a person in this state has actually tricked themselves into believing that their good works, their actions, are what solely define their righteousness. The story of the Pharisees shows us that it is entirely possible to have an external appearance of righteousness and a deeply, deeply sinful heart. On the contrary, we can be redeemed by Jesus. I mean, really, he has dealt with the problem of sin in the interior of our soul. And we can have days where we mess up or maybe we're actually just living in a good way for Christ, but we are, we are so down on ourselves or we have such a, a negative attitude or understanding of who we are that we miss this on the other end of the spectrum. We forget that Jesus has actually freed us from this sort of scale of morality. Do this, get my love. Don't do this, don't get my love. Understanding righteousness and sin is essential to us actually having a robust and healthy relationship with Jesus. And the best way I've heard this described, it's not my uh, illustration, I just heard it applied to this, t- this teaching, is see, seeing sin, and I think this is true with a lot of the major issues even in our modern world today. We sort of live in a world where on a cable news forum, which I can't even watch anymore, my brain starts seeping out of my ears when I watch like the, a- the advent of entertainment cable news. What often happens is we'll take, or those pundits will take the most significant problem in the world. How do we deal with child poverty? 
And the, you, you know, go turn on any, any network news tonight. They'll put 16 faces on a screen and give them like two and a half minutes to discuss it. And what happens is it's like a pack of dogs eating a piece of meat. They're all on it and jumping into it. It's such a significant problem. And we address it with these soundbite issues that actually cannot be processed or, or questioned or even implemented. Because I think what people like is the drama connected around that. I think this is really true when it comes to the sort of enculturation we have about how to understand the deep matters of life. And I've heard people say that seeing sin like this, sort of like taking just a small aspect of it, the external deed, and not connecting it to the, to the heart motive that drives it, it's, it's sort of like a familiar phrase that everyone in this room has probably heard. You ever hear somebody say, that's just the tip of an iceberg? Anybody? Okay, it's a super common phrase, and it's, it's used to describe a situation where what you see happening is just a snapshot of what is actually happening. So with an iceberg, you can only see the part of it that is above the water. However, there is always a much larger portion of the iceberg below the waterline that dictates where it goes. And so if you were to say, I would really like to change the direction of this iceberg, it would be ridiculous to think that you could stand at the top of it, you know, grab the pointed tip and shove it in a different direction. That is not how you move an iceberg. The same is true with sin and our heart. Although we can spend our days trying to polish the exterior of our life, denying what we struggle with, the Bible says that that is simply, it's called behavior management. And it is, I think, at least in my life, it was the the biggest epiphany I had in understanding what I was and was not in Jesus. And if we see sin like this, if we simply understand it as a small tip that we just try to erase, what happens is we're destined to fail. There is no way the outcome can't be anything different than that. Because what it means is we have solely chosen to deal with the most significant matters that plague our heart by trying to willpower ourselves out of them. If we believe this way, it also evidences, I really do believe that we are not taking sin seriously enough. Because the bottom line of somebody that sees sin like this, like the Pharisees, for example, their greatest sin was that they thought they could address the matters of God without the Son of God. That's what happened. They thought they could handle their sins without Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is, why would you even want to handle your own sins? Like, I am here, you don't know this yet, in this state of Matthew, you don't know this yet, but I'm going to go to the cross to die for your sins. So why would you want to essentially take your head and run it into a brick wall constantly? In this case, self-righteousness. Why not let me free you from that? They could not get that in their head. And I think sometimes in very benevolent ways, we struggle with the, with the same challenges, whether it is self-righteousness or the fact that we believe we should be righteous without Jesus. In other words, we have forgotten that it is his righteousness alone. That actually makes us worthy before God. And that is a freeing statement on both sides of the fence. And so a really good practical definition of of how to define sin in the Christian faith is simply to miss God's mark. Okay, and I want to share with you something from a really well-known theologian. He's written a stack of books taller than me, but there's a a very fat book he has. His name is Millard Erickson. It's called The uh, the Dictionary of Christian Theology. It's, It's sort of one of the no pun intended, textbook textbooks when it comes to properly understanding significant theological terms. And he says, defining sin, he says it like this. And what I like about this definition is it's a very practical definition. It's rich and deep, but it gives us immediate action steps. There are, there are ways we can sort of orient our lives around a statement like this. He says, sin is any act, any attitude, or disposition. And what he means by disposition is it's a disposition of the heart. 
For example, Jesus says, you've heard it said in the Old Testament that if you murder, you know, you've broken one of the great commandments. But I tell you in the New Testament, if you murder with your heart, if you think about it, if you have such animosity towards such a person that you can kill them in your brain, it's like an equivalent problem. That's the disposition of the heart he talks about. We can sin without even doing anything because of what's going on in our head and our heart. Sin is any act, any attitude or disposition that fails to completely fulfill or measure up to the standards of God's righteousness. And then he goes on to say, it may involve an actual transgression of God's law or failure to live up to his norms, to hit God's mark. And so that's a, an articulate way of saying it is both an inner reality of the heart and it can often be expressed in an outer deed. And those two are, are, um, are not mutually exclusive. The Pharisees sinned greatly in their hearts, but on the outside you couldn't tell. And so think of sin, as far as what Erickson says, think of sin from the angle of like a professional archer, okay? An archer's sole goal, if you ever watched an Olympic archery, is to shoot an arrow and hit the center or the target of a bullseye. That's all that they're there to do. They train constantly to take a arrow and put it right in the middle of a target. And in our illustration, according to Erickson, God is truly an expert archer who has designed our world to function in a very specific way. The commandments of the Old Testament they really are very significant commandments. And when followed, even if you are not a, a follower of the God of our Bible, they are good for humanity. It is actually good to not murder and steal and not lie. The basic morality of those commands were actually a great grace God showed the world in saying, listen, if you function by these things, your life will, will flourish a little more than if you don't. And so what happens here is God has a bullseye heart attitude through our hearts and our deeds. He desires from us a certain way to live, a certain way to love and treat him, and a certain way to love and treat each other. And the, the world he created is designed from this angle. He has no problem hitting his mark. However, the same is not true for us as humans. For a short time, there is a place where humanity does hit the mark. There is a place where the arrows of the human heart are genuinely in love with God. This is the first ch chapters of Genesis. But the, the, the root sin, the sin that defined all sin to come, when we read about this in the first chapters of Genesis, is knowledge. Now, not, I'm not saying knowledge in a bad way, but what happens here is the, the people of God in that moment, they desire to know something like God. They actually believe if they, if they love knowledge more than they love God, or if they know, love knowledge in a way that is equal to God, they will be fulfilled in a way that, that can satisfy their hearts. And what happens is their understanding of the world at large, their understanding of the concept of evil, all of these things, that's the outside problem. The inside problem is they sought in something a fulfillment, hoping that it would satisfy them like God, and it couldn't. And that is also the root reality of every sin. So when somebody turns to the bottle for peace, right, what that means is they're trying to find peace in a bottle when Jesus promises pure peace. The problem with the bottle is it empties, where Jesus promises to fill our wells in a way that never empties, right? Any sin that we deal with, any abuse, a substance abuse, an, an emotional abuse, whether we impose it on ourselves or impose it on somebody else, the major issues we see in our world, whether we puff ourselves up in ways where we cause ourselves to think we're more righteous and we disadvantage other people, we take on an unhealthy God complex, or we are so unsure of ourselves that we forget the fact that Jesus has actually made us sure through the cross. All of these things, we're sort of settling for lesser truths in our lives. 
And when we grab at those things, we live in ways that are less than ideal than the way God desires us to live. Every sin can be traced back to turning to something, whether it is volitionally or just we don't even know any better and with a good heart we migrate towards something. Every sin can be traded back to, uh, tr- excuse me, traced back to looking towards something, hoping it will satisfy us like God can, and it won't. The great idols of the Bible, power, control, money, do, you know, put, drop the whole list out of here. Every one of them, we think that thing will make us ultimately happy, and it cannot. Money might make you happy for a while until the stock markets tank, right? Control might make you happy for a while until you realize, like, for everything you can control in life, there's 65 things you can't control. Every one of these is self-defeating. And every one of these is sort of the way we grab the tip of our heart, the tip of the sin problem, and try to find peace by directing it. For this short time, there was this period of peace in the Old Testament. But humanity's first sin is what I just described. It's when it enters the world. And at that moment, sin cosmically breaks the relationship we have with God. And certainly the history of the world, we can see the effects of this and the way people have treated people. And so clearly the root of the first sin is much more than just an action. It's the tip of the iceberg that shows when given the chance, people will be greatly tempted and some are just going to outright choose to live their lives apart from God. And that's why the proverbial idea of a good person still being sinful, this is why we think this is an accurate biblical truth because sin is much more than just an external action and its root is a, rebe- it's a rebellious condition of the heart against God. And when it comes to those of us in Christ or those of us trying to determine if we even want to be in Jesus, Maybe you're here saying, like, I just showed up today, and let's see where this is going. Like, maybe you're questioning faith, or you think the whole idea of Christianity is like a, it's a great mythology up there with Norse gods and, you know, Roman gods. Maybe you're in that camp. I, I want to leave all of us with sort of a, a thought to ponder this morning. Here's how we'll wrap up, prepare ourselves for the communion table. It's a warning. Self-righteousness, uh, judgment, I've already told you this is not an exclusively Christian thing. This is a people thing, and it expresses itself in just about every area of life. But I do want to uh, explain this from the angle of how, uh, amongst Christians, there are usually two pervasive beliefs that drive the understanding of how a person is made right before God. The first group, which can sort of affectionately be called the I got it crowd, the folks who will hear, this is the, the Pharisee, Okay. This is the group that thinks they always got it down. And this group says something like this. They say, I know what Christianity is. I read the words in the Greek and all the big textbooks, and I've got righteousness down. I know what the doctrines of the Bible say about it. I read the Bible a lot, and I read the Bible so much that I know what the rules of the Bible are. And because of that, I follow the rules, and that is how I understand faith. I've got faith because I do all that stuff. And in their heart, what somebody like this says especially when they hear a teaching like this, they say something like this. They say, uh, Anthony, uh, this, is a, this has been a good sermon. It's good teaching. But I learned that sin stuff a long time ago. And so a teaching like this, well, that's how we begin our understanding of faith. We recognize that sin is a problem and Jesus has died for us for it and tries to sustain us when we struggle with it. They look at the cosmic redemption. Jesus showed the world on the cross and they say, that is a beautiful truth, but it's in the past tense. In other words, I've already believed that. Now I move on from it. And what they say is teachings like this, well, these are the teachings for people that are drinking milk, you know, for those that are new in the faith. But I'm a meat person, right, using Paul's analogy. I need the deep ideas of the faith, the significant ideas of the faith. And what happens is just like the Pharisees, most educated folks on earth in the forms of religion, and they utterly missed 
the central truths of the actual religion, Christi- it wasn't Christianity then, it was close, they missed the central truths of what their faith believed, that God was a good God who sought to redeem the world and, and reconstitute a broken relationship with us. Try to find that teaching from a Pharisee in the New Testament. Jesus literally tells them at times, you guys are the teachers of the law. You're the people that are supposed to know beyond all other people what God wants in the world, but you've missed it. That's the I got it crowd. And they're so arrogant that they can't see that they don't got it. And so what that person actually says about righteousness is, they say, I look at God in heaven, and I'm going to put together my own form of righteousness. I'm going to put all the things I do in a package and hand them to God. And I'm going to say, God, I demand that you love me because of all that I do. And sadly, this person believes this is the foundation of what it means to love and be loved by God. And so if you've ever dealt with a person who's been abrasive or arrogant, who has fallen into one of the isms, moralism or legalism, maybe you can have some empathy there because for them, they literally think their pharisaical adherence to this stuff is what makes God love them. It is their God. It's in an ironic way, adherence to the law becomes more important than the God of the law. And so they truly are worshiping. They're just worshiping the wrong thing. This is the person that believes the foundation of what it means to love and be loved by God is earned every single moment of their life. And unfortunately, like I said, this crowd misses it in its entirety. Then there's the other side of the fence, the people who truly know that the Scripture actually does teach in a multitude of places that Christianity is not you putting together your best version of yourself and handing it to God as a ransom for His love. This is the challenge with the best version. Oftentimes we can conduct ourselves with the best version in the public sphere, but in the deep recesses of our heart or our mind, we're not the best version of ourselves. And this is where a true understanding of sin and righteousness matters. Because the beauty of this side of the fence is that this person knows that they, they cannot collect themselves in a way to earn the favor of God. And they also know that they don't have to. Because they know true righteousness is letting God apply Jesus' righteousness to your heart through the cross. It's not that they don't care for righteousness or the external deeds of life. They just know that Jesus died so that we didn't have to mess with the, or carry the onus of the bottom of the iceberg. These are two entirely, belief, entirely different belief systems. Utterly different faiths that lead you down two very different roads. The first makes you proud and arrogant. It goes no other place. Because it is self-righteousness. The God in that paradigm is self. And so if you think God loves you because of what you do, of course you're going to treat other people poorly. You're going to live with a complex where you look at other people down the barrel of your nose. And they're going to feel uncomfortable around you because you are not representing the type of fatherhood God desires the world to sense through us. It likely means a person in this camp is very far from God because they've trusted in self to deal with the great problem of sin. They don't need the breastplate of righteousness. They have their own breastplate of self-righteousness. The belief system of the second camp, however, is truly the foundation for what makes you a Christian. Because in this camp, you've trusted Jesus' righteousness to be the foundational authority for everything you attempt to do in life as you follow him. That is important to know. It is his grace and goodness in our lives. It is the bedrock upon which the Christian life is built. And so as we move to the communion table, On a day when we celebrate the love of the Father, I really pray you would see in a significant way just how evidential this table is to these truths we're talking about. The very fact that the fatherhood of God, he so desired the world to know his goodness and grace that he put his son on the cross so we could experience him. This is the importance of the communion table. I want you to ask yourself which breastplate of righteousness you're wearing. And if you come to the conclusion that it is the wrong one, 
Ask God to give you the strength and the grace to lay it down. Ask God to help you obey his greatest desire for your life, that you would let God, who, who made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for you, so that in Jesus you might become the righteousness of God. That's a beautiful truth plucked from the New Testament. And what it says is, if you feel defeated by the power of sin, or you recognize today that self-righteousness has, has crushed you, what we read in the Bible is that God says, let my son become sin. Let his righteousness deal with your sin so that you might actually live in the truth and the freedom, not of the self-righteousness of the heart or the self-deprecating righteousness of the heart when we feel like we cannot live up to whatever it is we're attempting to live up to. The standard becomes our identity in Christ. Let that be what drives every thought and action you have for the remainder of our time this morning and certainly as we move to the communion table here in a moment. Pray with me.